0: You're listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast presented by Smead Capital Management. At Smead Capital Management, we advise investors who fear stock market failure. You can learn more at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor.
1: Welcome to A Book With Legs podcast. I'm Cole Smead, president and portfolio manager here at Smead Capital Management. At our firm, we're readers and book junkies. It can be said that leaders are readers And we believe books provide us a great source of information for filtering what is and isn't important for investors. Investing is the last great liberal art and the best way to spend a lifetime of learning. This podcast is for readers, thinkers, business-minded people, and investors who want to grow their knowledge from great authors and their writing. Charlie Munger often talks about using multiple mental models and analysis. Our aim is for this podcast to help listeners test Munger's theory in business markets, and people. I'm glad you joined us for today's episode. I personally think we're gonna have a lot of fun and hear some great stories with our guest. Greg Zuckerman is joining us to talk about his book, The Frackers, that was published in 2013. Greg is an investigative journalist with the Wall Street Journal. He is also the author of five other books, including his 2009 book, The Greatest Trade Ever, and his newest book titled, A Shot to Save the World, The Inside Story, of the life-or-death race for a COVID-19 vaccine. Before introducing Greg, I'd just like to tell listeners that I believe Greg's book, The Frackers, is a seminal book to understanding how we got to where we are in the energy business in 2021 and why those businesses, uh, in many cases, have the current sentiment they do among investors. So uh, with no further ado, Greg, uh, thanks for joining us today.
0: Hey, great to be here.
1: So Greg, I, I, I you know, like I you're probably gaining i'm I'm probably the biggest fanboy as it pertains to your book. Um, I really enjoyed it. and uh, you know I, I have to ask like, you live in New Jersey, what inspired you to write this book?
0: That's <laughs> a good question. I'm a East Coast guy, and uh, my wife's from the West Coast, so I had never been to some of these places uh, little towns in Oklahoma and Texas and Louisiana. um What inspired me was just the fact that this was the most important business story uh, at the time and it hadn't been written frankly how we as a nation um, transformed from one desperate for oil and gas we were running out and to the point where we were exporting it i mean it sounded absurd to me and frankly it just hadn't been told the full story who the people were behind it Um, What were their stories? How did they pull it off? Why was it these people, these unlikely characters and companies, and it wasn't the people you would have expected. And I looked around and no one had told that story. And I wanted to be the one to travel the country and understand that story and tell it to the world.
1: So uh, we kind of talked about this prior to the show. Um, You enjoy getting into the lives of people and kind of telling their story. And I mean, you have some really big characters in this story. You know, you have George Mitchell, you have Tom Ward and and uh, McClendon, uh, you have Harold Hamm, you have uh, you know Papa in this story. Um, But you kind of use Mitchell as your starting off point for talking about really how this industry evolved. And and you know, I have to assume that meeting George Mitchell or talking with uh, his family was quite an interesting story to you know to think about fracking and how this business progressed and even. Geography because I mean he had been there since the 1960s
0: Yeah, I'll tell you a funny story about him. So he was my first interview for this book I think I probably talked to an analyst or two, but in terms of the main character So I flew out to Houston and here I am this uh, East Coast guy who doesn't know that much about energy I've done a little bit of writing about energy, but not that much and I got to sit down with George and um, you know It's a real privilege. Obviously. He's the uh, the father or the grandfather of of this fracking revolution. But as a writer, you want to make your subjects, uh, your characters comfortable. You want to have something in common that often helps to get them comfortable. And I I was wary flying out there. What do I know from George Mitchell, this big Houston oil baron? And so we sit down together. We start talking and he tells me the story of his life. And he tells me about uh, his father, uh, Savas and he says how Savas uh, was an immigrant from a little town in Greece came over they off Ellis Island they said go work on the uh, building the rails from uh, I think it was Arkansas to Texas and um, one day his uh, paymaster comes to him and says "Uh, Savas uh, I can't spell this name what's with this name of yours and Savas says well what's your name he goes my name is Mike Mitchell and Savas is like, all right, I'll be Mike Mitchell too. <laughs> he took his name and his son is George Mitchell. And I love that story for so many reasons, but uh, among them is the fact that I, my great-grandfather got off the boat at Ellis Island. They said, what's your name? And he said, Ramshinsky. And they're like, nah, we can't spell that. Take the last guy that just came through. His name was Zuckerman. So um, we had a lot in common, more common than than you would have thought. So and anything that's sort of emblematic of this whole book and this project for me, because the more I got to, to meet the oil barons and the fracking Kings, all that kind of stuff. And people that are so different from me, you realize how similar we all are. And that was one of the real themes of my research. And yeah, George was just a fascinating guy. He's an entrepreneur. He's a resilient businessman, creative, innovative. He's everything you you love about America and about American business.
1: Yeah, and, and George, what you what you lay out in your story is really that George kind of did two things in an incredible way that led the industry, which was, um, you know, first off his technique, in other words, the idea of fracking uh, itself, and then secondly, geography, because the fracking would take them into geographies that people hadn't been before.
0: Yeah, listen, he's so impressive in, in, in so many ways. Um, his perseverance, um, he, again, he's that sort of true immigrant story, he, he and his, his family, but Just the fact that he he had to persevere over, forget about outsiders and skeptics who said, yes, fracking, and we understand shale. Shale's always been there. We know there's a lot of oil and gas packed into shale, but don't waste your time on it. He he had skeptics within his own company. His own president, Bill Stevens, opposed uh, fracking in the Barnett shale. He was the president of his own company. Sometimes he had to work behind his president's back, and frankly, he was... Approaching 80 years old when they had their breakthrough. He had survived cancer. His wife had Alzheimer's He had had different different problems debt problems. He couldn't pay his Charitable pledges was a little embarrassing. I just love that that perseverance that resilience
1: the idea of energy independence um, 20 years ago that was thought as impossible Um, As we talked about even 15 years ago that no one thought that was possible either Um, are you blown away that we've gone from this conversation of we'll never be energy independent, we'll always be dependent on foreign oil to we have maybe the world's greatest glut of energy and have to take it somewhere?
0: Yeah, I don't think the average citizen, uh, is aware or appreciative enough of how much things have changed. I still have a vague memory of being the backseat of my parents' car in 1973 on a long line to get gas at the pump um, due to the Arab uh, energy boycott, oil boycott, and it was just an understood thing as I was in school, high school and college, that we were dependent on others and that there was no way out. And even we had a president who was an oil man and he didn't suggest any kind of revolution. was in the offing and it was just sort of conventional wisdom that we were running out of oil and gas in the United States. And then to the beat today we're at the point where we're we're exporting it we have so much we're exporting gas even oil we were exporting crude to the saudis a few years ago it's a crazy concept that i don't think people uh properly appreciate
1: yeah so in your book one of the one of the most interesting characters for this idea of uh exporting uh is sharif uh suki who, who you tell the story you know like you said earlier classic american story lebanese immigrant um, who gets this idea uh, to, you know, in effect, import natural gas under the heading of we don't have enough here in the United States. Could you kind of uh, teach our listeners, um, you know, that story out of your book? Uh, because I think it's fascinating to see the, the pivot and the about face that he had to do.
0: Yeah, there are really few, few, fewer more unlikely characters to lead the U.S. En- energy revolution than Sharif Suki. He's an immigrant from Lebanon. He spent years as an investment banker. He retired to go ski in Aspen. He started some bars and some restaurants there and in Los Angeles. And he started a restaurant called the Mezzaluna Restaurant, which uh, is pretty well known for a while, or infamous, I should say, because that's where um, that the, the O.J. Simpson uh, murder uh, was centered around that restaurant. And Nicole Brown Simpson was in that restaurant uh, one evening and left her glasses there in the restaurant and then... Um, a young man brought uh, the glasses to her home and then O.J. Simpson uh, allegedly or uh, uh, murdered them both and um, that restaurant for a while was just uh, world-renowned. People came from all over the world to go there afterwards and, and Sharif Suki was kind of sickened by the whole thing. He's like, they're coming here not for the food but because there was a murder associated with my restaurant and he just needed something new. He was running out of money and he thought the, at, the, at the time, the oil and gas industry, there was a lot of underinvestment. This is around the time of the uh, dot-com boom and bubble, around 2000 or so. And he saw the money was going elsewhere to technology and other kind of shares and companies, and not enough was going to oil and gas. So he said, all right, maybe I can focus on oil and gas. And he started an exploration company. didn't really work. Um, but then um, he said, okay, well, what if we start importing gas into the United States. And because all the experts say we're running out of oil and gas, so maybe we should be importing oil and gas. And he's a really persuasive, convincing individual, and he raised billions and billions of dollars to build these huge plants uh, in Louisiana to import natural gas. And here we are on the eve of the or early parts of the US energy revolution, and all of a sudden, <laughs> they, we we have the surplus of gas that's developing, and he talked to people like Aubrey McClendon, and they were like, "Yeah, we're 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 producing so much gas in this country, so much of it. I don't know why you're importing it. Can you imagine importing gas when, when there's a glut coming in?" He was, uh, he he was in trouble. He and his company, Chenier Energy, were truly in trouble, and they didn't really have a solution. So, Sharif Suki and Shanir were in trouble. They were about to import natural gas amid uh, a glut of it. So, to his credit, Sharif Suki could have just said, all right, we're done here. I'm going to move on to some other industry, some other approach. But instead, he said, I'm going to try to figure out a solution. And his solution was, well, hold on a second, guys. If you're saying that there's going to be a glut in the United States due to all this shale production, Maybe instead of importing natural gas, we should be exporting it. <laughs> and his investors, he was lucky because the stock was so cheap at the time. His investors had no solutions, and they had written down <laughs> their investments. So they're like, yeah, Sharif, sure. if, if you want to give it a shot, try. And he did, and he basically raised billions and billions more additional capital to turn their facilities into export facilities. It's not so easy to do, and uh, I really am impressed by that resilience and that perseverance and that creativity. And yeah, they turned Shneer into the biggest uh, gas exporter. So it's a impressive story in in my view. Yeah,
1: to your point, the I mean the ninety nine two thousand period was kind of a central period um, for a lot of the businesses and people in your book. Um, as you mentioned, you know Suki had. Um, They had to deal with this. This, uh, in effect, what was thought to be a scarcity, then a glut. Um, But it was tough to raise capital for a lot of these people, whether it be Harold Hamm, you know, George Mitchell. Um, I mean, do you looking? I'm kind of cheating ahead on this, but a lot of the parallels of then seem like they're kind of ringing in our ears now. And I don't know if that's something you've kind of paralleled with that with that period in the oil and gas business it's a
0: great point I hadn't thought about it frankly but yes in, uh, in many ways there are similarities in that it's just hard to get uh, capital if you're in the oil and gas business today uh, both from the banks from investors and frankly there's been a change on the part of there aren't as many independents anymore those independents wildcatters and such just uh, have a difficulty they can't production it's not all about production it's about cash flow and, and earnings for the first time forever. Um, so yes, there are a lot of parallels and you would think there'd be opportunities too. When an industry has underinvestment or lack of investment. Um, by definition, uh, those who have capital should be able to see opportunity.
1: Yeah. Cause you, you go through some of the cycles of this industry. Um, you, you, you talked a lot, uh, I remember uh, catching parts of your book where you highlighted how um, you know, Harold Hamm, this figure that we haven't talked much about so far, um, who was obviously you know, a poor Oklahoma kid, um, comes from a you know, very simple means, and ends up getting in, in the, the uh, drilling and, and, and fracking and oil business. Um, but he does that both of the drilling and the oil side, and then ends up selling kind of fortuitously, uh, his drilling business at maybe the best time in Oklahoma's ever seen.
0: Yeah. Harold Hamm is a fascinating character. He, uh, maybe the most interesting in my view in the book, uh, just the, the rags to riches story. He grew up, the the youngest of 13 children. He, he couldn't even start school each year until after Christmas because his parents were poor. And he had to help them. They were sharecroppers. And um, he had to help them work the fields. And only by the time around December, late December, Christmas time, was it so cold that he couldn't help anymore. He was no longer needed in the fields. So, I mean, he was so poor that he he, I, he told me a story that he got this first, his first pair of shoes. of I'm sorry, his first pair of new shoes was when his little shock of a home burned down and his neighbors chipped in and got him a pair of shoes and he you could see in his face it was sort of a positive story um it, it burnt down so they had to step up and and people chipped in and he got a new pair of shoes and he remembered the experience as being a positive one when most others would kind of see their home burning down as a, as a negative experience um and then he didn't really he didn't go to he didn't have a geology degree in any kind he Pump gas for a dollar an hour after, after earning a high school credit, his high school credits. And he started as low as he can get, kind of cleaning out the muck, the sediment from oil tankers in the bottom of those trucks and climbing in there and, and raking out the the, the debris, the, the sediment from these tankers. And frankly, for, for years, so then he threw himself into the uh, oil business. He kind of said, all right, I, I don't want to be Poor anymore. I want to be, have some wealth, and who, who who's wealthy? It's these oil guys that that I see are around me. And he he said, I want to be like them. And he and he picked their brains and he learned from them. And very uh, his education was sort of ad hoc, and on the fly. But um, he said, I'm going to be like these guys. I'm going to I'm going to save my money, which he did, and he's going to do some exploration, which he did, and he made some money, and uh, right locally in, in Oklahoma. And I visited the little town that. He's from uh, Enid, and um, I saw the home that he grew up in, and his father was a local pastor, and I got to experience it and talk to people, and it was just a, pl- a priv- privilege and a, and a pleasure to to go to to see some of these towns in, in America where that kind of birthed this revolution. And anyway, Harold Hamm, he, he started this company, and um, people snickered. People made fun of him. He talked rough. He didn't really... He went to Dale Carnegie at one point to try to improve his his, uh, the way he presented himself. Uh, he had this, this a story where he was in an airplane and, and he was f- trying to fly it and he didn't put the, the, the brake on and it crashed into a car and people mocked him and he was always suing people. And, but again, he had no geology or any other kind of course in college. He's from this little town, Enid, the ninth largest in Oklahoma. But he, he heard about the Bakken and he heard about the, the, the promise of the Bakken and he kind of believes in the, the tight limestone there and that area, North Dakota, Montana. And he thought it might yield a lot of oil, even though the experts said, don't waste your time there. And he went up there and he made his big bet on the Bakken when other people could have, you know, all the Exxon and the majors, they'd given up on America. They, they were offshore, they were in Africa, they were in Asia, they, they, they weren't betting on America. And, and Harold Hamm and the other people in, in my book, The Frackers, were, and I just love that that um belief in, in, in both this country and and the promise of, of, of the of the natural resources but in the, the what we could do what we could innovate what how creative we could be and, and and that's what he was and um listen part of my book is about gas and the people who believed in gas and that's Albert mccleson and, and and Tom Ward and, and others but oil is even harder to get from shale and from some of those tight rock and um that's what harold ham was about
1: yeah so harold uh, is really kind of the central character of the story uh, you know as i felt from a, uh, as a reader and he kind of you know back to the cycles of this um you know he sold he sold his drilling business i think you you, you said in your book it was in 1982 for like 30 million dollars so i mean he was he, he had made good money early on and then uh, I mean, a lot of these characters had to walk through the crisis that Oklahoma had with uh, Penn Square, uh, you know, failing. And interestingly, Greg, I've, I've been to Penn Square uh, just by, by random circumstances. Um, was, that a, was that Penn Square discussion for these Oklahoma people? I mean, was that, was that as big of a tipping point in the local economy, in the industry, as your book led on to be?
0: Oh, it was huge. Yeah, you can't not talk to veterans without hearing stories about that period. And frankly, there are these people there. uh, Well, oil and gas generally, they've gone through cycles. And outsiders don't appreciate the resilience and the ability to handle some of these ups and downs. So, you know, we in the press will write about the latest downturn, such as the difficulties right now. And, and I'm not saying it's not difficult and challenging. It, it is. But when you talk to veterans, they say, Greg, come on, we've gone through so much in this industry. If you've been in this industry a few decades, there are so many ups and downs. They never get too high. They never get too low. And it's it's a real um, trademark of, of, these, of the industry and the, and the veterans of the industry. They've been through it all and um they don't they don't blow their money in some ways they like like maybe some other industries um they're not buying sometimes they're buying the, like the big ocean liner kind of things and e- even sort of the the land man they, when they're making a lot of money they they seem to save it i'm not saying they don't they don't enjoy themselves as well but they um save a little bit more because they know right around the bend there's gonna be some downturn it's a it, it's a ups and ups and down The volatility that i think other people couldn't handle but uh, when you talk to veterans, they just sort of, uh, they're, they know it's a ride. It's, a, it's a, a volatile industry, and they're prepared for that.
1: Yeah, you pointed out in your book that oil uh, went from $36 in 1981 to $15 in 1986. Um, I, I know I know the, the late uh, Boone Pickens had, had uh, put a quote on the front of your book, um, but that was kind of a Boone Pickens era, and, and I know your book didn't talk a lot about that. But in many ways, the people that survived that were really the seeds of your book because that's who got to finally build the energy independence in the end.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. You, um, the survivors have the capital and they have the experience and the knowledge. And I think you could say the same thing today. Those who can get through this period uh, will do quite well um, because that's the, this industry is, is full of ups and downs. There's another downturn right around bend but there's also another upturn. And it's all about, ball- I, 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 the thing that impressed me the most is the technological innovation in this industry. So people in the media, and I talk about my brethren here, uh, we, we think of Silicon Valley when it comes to uh, American technological innovation. You don't think of the oil and gas industry. And, and that's just so wrong. When you think of horizontal drilling, how it's perfected. That's the other half of the revolution. You know, we talk about fracking, but horizontal drilling is just as important. And to go from, you know, to the, I guess it was about maybe a 30 multi-staged fracking at one point when I was writing the book and they've improved on that since then. And uh, that's so innovative and people don't understand the average layman doesn't understand the creativity uh, in, in the industry. And it's a technological revolution as well.
1: So you, you kind of get into some of the interesting history of, uh, you know, the idea of breaking up rock. You talk about Civil War situations and, and, and uh, others that kind of created some of these original ideas. Why, why is it Do you think that fracking and horizontal drilling took so long to catch on? Was it just the unique geographies that people ran into or, or was, it, was it just stupid thinking in the industry itself?
0: It's a combination of two things. First of all, it's very expensive. So you need uh, high oil and gas prices to justify investing. So, listen, we all knew, everyone knew shale was packed with oil and gas. But it was just too far down there, too challenging a rock, too expensive to get at. And so it took higher prices. But part of it also is just conventional wisdom in an industry. And it's not just the oil and gas industry. Um, I talk about it a lot. I mean, I'm, I just wrote a book about... The vaccine revolution and how we develop these effective vaccines to save the world uh, companies that are just as unlikely as as mitchell and, and ham's company this company moderna in cambridge that no one really cared much about and there were a lot of similarities believe it or not so mrna is an approach that everyone said yeah maybe it could work but probably not and there were some stubborn scientists that ignored the conventional wisdom and that was exactly what happened here people said yeah fracking hypothetically could work or shale yeah it's a it's an interesting rock it's um, got all that oil and gas but don't waste your time on it and it took guys like george mitchell and his team the people i write about and harold ham and Aubrey mcclendon to ignore the conventional wisdom and sometimes you do and the conventional wisdom among the, the giants was don't waste your time with shale and it took these stubborn entrepreneurs, these wildcatters, to ignore the conventional wisdom. When everyone else preached, go to Africa, go to Asia, go anywhere but America, I mean, Exxon's headquarters are literally on top of ground zero for this fracking revolution, the Barnett Shale. And was Exxon exploring in the Barnett? No, they were going anywhere but their own literal backyard. And it took George Mitchell and these other stubborn entrepreneurs to ignore the conventional wisdom.
1: Yeah, so there's this interaction, um, like you said, it takes a lot of capital to frack and 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 do these exercises and techniques, um, and so there's this constant interaction in your book between the public markets and these companies, um, you know, uh, and that's enhanced by, like we said, the cycles, the you know, the Penn Square situation, um, Mitchell, you know, developing the Woodlands is kind of a sideshow to his life, um, and selling out No. One, and then. You have Chesapeake, uh, who went as low as a dollar in '99. Um, you know, so I, I guess the capital structure, time and time again, was really important for these people. Um, did I mean your book kind of goes through the idea that you know like some were good and some were bad, and some had great ideas and could never make it?
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. I talk about some wildcatters and others who believed in shale just as much as george mitchell they believed in tight right just as much as tight rock just as much as harold ham i could go on and on and yet they didn't make it they didn't succeed they had abject failure embarrassing failure often and i think it's important to tell their stories as well just to show that it wasn't just about the idea and just a, not just about seizing on shale and similar kinds of rock formations takes a lot more you got to have investors that are lined up that believe in you that believe, that will stay with you that um, have capital that won't flee um, at the first sign of, of, of failure and not everyone had that and all, people like Albert McClinton and Harold ham are not just creative and innovative they're also very persuasive <laughs> and um, they have, it, have a way with investors and they have a way of, of they or Aubrey's no longer with us, but um, they had a way of, of reassuring nervous uh, backers. And that's just as important as the ideas and the, and the creativity. And there's a real lesson there as well for the entrepreneurs and for those thinking about starting companies or looking to back new ones.
1: Yeah, to your point about uh, McClendon, uh, if there was ever kind of a love child between Wall Street and the oil business, uh, Aubrey, you know, he, he seemed to be that. Uh, you know, his family's background that you kind of lay out. So I'd love to, I'd love for you to take listeners just through a little bit about Aubrey because, uh, I mean, he maybe understood the public markets better than anyone.
0: Aubrey McClendon was such a fascinating guy. People have said to me after reading The Frackers, Greg, I really like the book. I just don't know if I like these characters. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't, which is a Fine reaction, and, and it's not a, a bad one to have. They're great characters, no one more so than Aubrey McClendon. I mean, he, he was born to Oklahoma oil nobility, sort of. His mother's family was the, part of the Kerr McGee family, but not the right side of that family. So they had money, but not a, a ton of money. And he goes to Duke. He's not necessarily set on joining joining the family industry and big, becoming an oil and gas person. I think he was going to be an accountant. He majored in political science, but he decides to try the, the family business a little bit, comes back to Oklahoma and goes into the industry and he's very charismatic. He's a landman, man um, and he realizes, hey, the real money was, is an exploration. So he shifts gears and he tries his hands at exploration and Frankly, he's a fast follower in shale. He's not like George Mitchell. He didn't come up with the idea of targeting shale, but he realizes early on in the revolution, hey, I think there's something going on here. I think that this country, we can produce a lot of, of gas. Natural. He was all about natural gas, at least at that point. And, and, and he says, I'm gonna be the one to do it. And he, he, he it's a land grab like never before seen in the nation. He borrowed, he bought, uh, himself borrowed personally money to buy shares of his company uh, he believed he was a believer i love that so you know in other industry sometimes you see people selling uh, on the way up he was buying on the way up he, no one believed more in this in his approach but in this nation in in, in, the, in the possibilities of natural gas from shale no one believed more than aubrey mcclendon himself and as natural gas cl- prices climbed in early 2008 he was worth about three billion dollars he he's part owner of the oklahoma basketball franchise he brought them to oklahoma the thunder he was he enjoyed the limelight there was no one really bigger and more outgoing and charismatic than aubrey McClendon. and the problem was he believed too much he went back and borrowed even more on the way up but then uh when he was a victim of his own success that he found so much gas he and his colleagues other companies too he found so much gas that gas prices collapsed. They went from about $13 to about $2 in 2012. So his stock uh, dropped and his debt he had to deal with. And he basically was tossed out of his company that he founded. So in some, in some ways, he was a little naive and he believed too much. So I, I have a soft spot in my heart for Aub- Aubrey because in the end it did not work out and eventually, he, sadly, he, he died in, in mysterious circumstances. But um, we have him to thank in a lot of ways, he and his colleagues, Tom Ward and others, for believing this country and believing in innovation and, and gobbling up all that land and producing so much gas. And frankly, it's helped us transition to uh, alternatives, I would argue, and um, get away from coal. So he's a, he's a controversial figure, but I would argue that uh, at the end of the day he's, he's one we can learn from and uh definitely be entertained by
1: yeah as a as a uh, seattle kid growing up uh you <laughs> know rereading your story and, and listening to you know him partnering with clay bennett to take the sonics away is always <laughs> a painful part of your book sorry about um, that yeah yeah i know and, and and like you said they were having so much success it, it's the kind of stuff that's prone to Prone to cause issues. Could you? um, I have to jump into this because it's just it's too interesting from a corporate uh, perspective. Um, Could you talk about you know what their headquarters, kind of the opulence that you lay out, and then also what Ward and McClendon were doing on the side personally? Yes. So
0: Oklahoma City was a bit of a backwater before Aubrey McClendon got there. I don't want to exaggerate his importance, but. He is among the most important figures, maybe the most important figure in that city over the past hundred years or so. What what he brought in there, it wasn't just the the growth of, of of Chesapeake and the hiring, obviously, but they invested in the city, and part of it was the basketball team, as you suggest. But it was more than that. Just restaurants started up n- nearby. Um, Whole Foods, the, the 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 headquarters itself was an impressive place. People wanted to work there it kind of put Oklahoma City on the map. And it's a pretty cool city. I've been there, spent time there. I like it a lot. So, um, and they, people put point, they still give him credit for that. I mean, Tom Ward to some extent too, but Aubrey had this vision and a confidence and a charisma that is just unmatched in other industries. Maybe you get it in the high-tech world to some extent in Silicon Valley, but only the oil and gas business really has these kind of, um, outgoing salesmen And I say that in a uh, positive sense, not a negative um, terminology. But listen, listen, you've got to convince investors, backers, that there's something deep down in the ground, well below the surface, be it oil or gas or both, that, that is promising. And they can't see it. Your investors have to be persuaded. And it lends itself to, to it gives itself to uh, the opportunity for for people like Albert McClanson. and yeah it wasn't just about oil and gas for him he believed in Oklahoma City and he really b- built it helped helped it, put it on the map
1: yeah so to your point uh, you know he was persuasive but obviously you know back to our idea of capital um, you you kind of go to the well one too many times and you can run into a lot of trouble obviously uh, you know many people did that uh, you know we, you talked about Devorin in your book who did that oryx ran into that tough stretch. Um, you know a lot of this is still that interaction between you know like a charismatic salesman and a banker and these investors at the end of the day. And, the, and kind of the question that I cropped up in my mind to your point about a visionary is what what does this mean for investors? What, what, what was your you know as an investor personally, what what did you take away from a lot of this? Um, was it something that interested you or is it something you just looked and said, you know what? uh if there's good salesman i I might not want to be at the table so it's really
0: interesting the era of the frackers and my book is about these companies it's about these individuals the characters and i really do spend a lot of time focused on the geologists the people who don't get a lot of credit but are responsible for this revolution and i would argue that net net it benefited this revolution all the oil and gas that was discovered it benefited the nation so much in terms of jobs, in terms of the types of cities, types of towns that were that benefited. I've traveled the country. It's often places that were down for the count and um, they, they didn't have industry. And all of a sudden, people were buying up land. People that were losing farms could stay on their farms uh, and their properties. There were people who benefited who were veterans, a lot of veterans benefited from this industry uh, and from this revolution so the country benefited as a whole the economy did and you have to remember it was right on the heels of the housing collapse so to have a shot in the arm as it were from this industry in terms of hiring and the production um, was a true benefit so um, the country benefited you could also argue I would argue that net net it helped the environment because we were able to shift away from coal and um, embrace natural gas. Now, you could argue that w- we didn't do it fast enough. We haven't, they haven't done a great job, and they really have not done a very good job in terms of um, the, the escape of natural gas in terms of production. And when you travel around North Dakota, like I did, and you see the flaring at night and it's beautiful, but it's very troubling. But, but again, the, the nation benefited, these companies, the, the, the characters benefited, um, the people in the cities like Oklahoma did. But but to get, to get to your point, the investors did not. And um, it was almost like a Robin Hood kind of thing, I felt, that um, people like Auburn McClendon were, I don't want to say stealing. They were not stealing. But they, they were taking from the rich, uh, uh, broadly speaking, the investors, and I don't want to say give it to the poor, but giving it, giving it to others, sometimes poorer people. But the, the investors were the ones who never saw, I wouldn't say never saw, often didn't see the benefit in terms of production. In production, they saw, but in terms of profits, in terms of cash flow. And it it always struck me as an outsider as being quite surprising because the investors at the time were always emphasizing uh, production, production, production. And And I was, I don't know, I'm a sort of old school investor kind of person. I grew up reading a lot of these books, uh, Buffett and others, and I thought earnings or at least cash flow were something they should be focused on. And people always said at at the time, well, eventually we're going to shift to that, Greg. We're going to get to the period where profits matter and revenues matter and cash flow, free cash flow matters. And I did see that in the cable industry years earlier, the same kind of thing where they spent, they spent, they spent, and eventually investors prioritized cash flow. and. Until, I would argue, just a couple years ago, that was still the case in the oil and gas industry. Right now, we're speaking at the end of uh, 2021, and things have changed. So now, finally, people are very focused on cash flow and earnings, and it's not all about production. And it's been really hard for people like Harold Hamm and others of the pioneers to shift gears. Their whole mindset forever in this industry was about production, production. It was like a mantra and almost a macho kind of thing. I'm going to get more production than you. And it was not about earnings. And everything is turned on a dime. So um, to your point, it's a really good one that it's not so clear that the investors were the priority. They were not the priority during this revolution. Everything else but cash flow and free cash flow was important, but that has changed. And, and they have gotten religion. I do have to say the people like Harold Hamm, they say that he's changed and for good reason. He owns a lot of shares. They all own a lot of shares. They're all big believers in their own companies. And they realize that maybe production shouldn't be the emphasis. Maybe if we could just keep it um, steady and slow and we can make a lot of money, we can all benefit.
1: Yeah, it, uh, to your point. I mean the excitement, uh, that whole in- energy independence that we talked about earlier. Um, that that excitement was, uh, you know, just a kind of a theme out of the people that bled into the country, in effect. And I, I'm sure you remember, like I did, that was ultimately the pitch for investors was this idea of energy independence. Um, when you see that kind of excitement, does that just kind of scare you personally as an investor? Because, um, you know, in comparison, we kind of sit at the opposite end of that excitement uh, from a sentiment standpoint. Yes,
0: as an investor, as an individual, as a citizen, right, the whole geopolitics of it is very exciting too. We haven't really touched on that, but that's a tremendous benefit from this revolution. Just the fact that we're not beholden to people like the Saudis and people in the Gulf. Um, We've got so much production and potential still in places like the Bakken and and originally the Barnett and other places uh, in, in in this country, it's it's allowed us to do have so much more freedom in, internationally in terms of geopolitics. Uh, but as an investor, as you said, right, it's on the backs of the investors. All this stuff, all the changes, all the the positives are really um, thanks to the investors. They they're don't get enough credit for writing these checks and plowing money into play- companies like Chesapeake and Continental and, and others back in the day. and they did not benefit lar- f- to the large uh, extent not as much as they should have. and you, you, you know there's been a lot written about how much how little free cash flow, um, emerged from these revolutionary characters and companies, but I, I do think that's changed. Yeah, because
1: the the last time a consolidation that was really seen in this industry was in that late that late nineties. Early two thousands period where you know you had Mitchell get bought by Devin. Um You had you know in the following five years you had the likes of Aubrey McClendon and Tom Ward um, consolidating. How did you look at the consolidation of then um, kind of like today? Do you look at that as a big positive or uh, you know in studying these people and these companies? What, what's your take on those big consolidation periods?
0: So as an investor, it's really positive. As a writer, it's negative. Why? Because the characters aren't there like they used to. There's some, but it's harder to be an independent. It's harder to step up and be an Aubrey McClendon or, or Harold Hamm and just persuade some backer that you're gonna target some new formation and everybody's got it wrong. All the majors don't know what they're talking about and I'm gonna show and American innovation is gonna change things. It, it, it can still happen and in this shakeout, I bet you there's some really interesting entrepreneurs who are gonna emerge. And frankly, if you, you, you've you got ideas or, or your audience does, I'd love to hear about them. I'd love to write about them for, for the journal, but um, it's changed in that regard. And I guess it's a positive for the industry, the shakeout, the consolidation, the most successful and, ef- and efficient will survive. And for the future, that is the way it should be. Um, I, I, if I'm putting on my business hat lens, but just as a writer looking for characters and drama Uh, and uh, people that maybe shouldn't be doing what they were doing. I mean, in hindsight, Auburn McClendon and Tom Ward grew too quickly. In hindsight, Harold Hamm should have been more focused on on free cash flow. That makes sense reasonably, but uh, as a storyteller, (laughs) it's not what I want.
1: Yeah, no question. Um, So since, like I I mentioned, I love books, we love books, Um, I I was really interested as a reading through your story – what your kind of, you know, what, what work did you go to originally to, um, get more background? Obviously you were interviewing a lot of people, uh, like him, like Mitchell, etc. Um, were there other books that you went to to get a really good, um, background in this industry?
0: Yeah, I kind of read everything and anything at the time. I threw myself into it. Obviously all of Jurgens, uh, Daniel Juergen's books, are really ha- uh, helpful. There was a book that Mitchell's people, Wrote it's kind of an obscure book. I don't even remember the title, frankly. I got it on Amazon. It was expensive. There aren't many that are published, but and it was a lot of technical stuff. But it told the history of the Barnett, which I found really helpful. Uh, there was a book about the uh, uh, Oklahoma and the pen and and, and and that whole collapse that was helpful. That's escaping me right now, but that's that was helpful. Um, but but frankly, I just talked to a lot of veterans, a lot of people in the industry. Then been through the ups and downs and people who worked for mitchell and um they were really helpful i could not have done this book without them i thank some of them in the in the acknowledgements uh, of the frackers so i encourage people to, to check that out but people um are much more um, willing to share and to help than one might think and i and i do have to make the point that it, it, it was such a um privilege to, travel the country and go to these little towns in Oklahoma, North Dakota, and spend time in Pennsylvania and Texas and get to know other kinds of people. And we don't have that opportunity enough in society today. And it's led to this big divide. And again, with my new book, with, with the vaccines and people, um, it's uh, everything's politicized in, in, in our in American society. And it's so sad. And I think it's a reflection of the fact that We just don't have an opportunity to meet each other and I had that opportunity and I'm so grateful that I could break bread with people in little towns in Oklahoma and get to know each other. And when when you do, you realize we have so much more in common than you would think. And people on the East Coast are very wary. Uh, and people on the west coast we're all very wary of of those in the heartland and, and vice versa and it's like tribal at this point my team versus your team and it's so sad for me because we're all americans and we have, we share so much more than you would think and we just don't get a chance to, to meet each other and yeah maybe we have disagreements and different lifestyles to some extent but again we have much more in common than, than we have um that, 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 that that opposes us. So I, I wish people had that opportunity that I had. And I'm so grateful for that opportunity.
1: Yeah. In your book, uh, you talk about Mark Papa, uh, and kind of the pivots his company had to do, you know, EOG resources came out of Enron. Um, it's obviously standing for Enron oil and gas. They then get to 2007 They're I mean, we're here we are in Phoenix, Arizona, at our company, and within 15 minutes of our office, he's sitting there telling all of executives, that we got to get out of the gas business. We got to move to oil. There's way too much gas out there. So, you know, I think about the pivots and the evolution of this industry. Here we are in 2021. If you had to revise this or add on to it, um, is there a company, is there a person, or is there a storyline that you'd love to grasp and add on to this? Oh,
0: Papa and what he did is both uh, impressive and and surprising. I mean, just to give your audience a a little sense, they were doing really well. They went to this retreat, as you said, in Arizona to celebrate. They were producing all this natural gas. And this was around, I forget, around uh, 2008 or so, 2009, maybe just a little bit after. And he was scared to death. His employees were high-fiving and celebrating. And Mark Papa said, hold on a second. we're producing all this oil and gas. I'm sorry, all this gas, this natural gas. Maybe others are also, and, and maybe there's a glut coming, and then we're in trouble. Prices are going to collapse. So guys, stop stop celebrating. Stop high-fiving. We, we've got to shift gears. And then he said, let's target oil. And it's easy to forget, but back then, people were not very optimistic about targeting shale f- for oil. Yeah, it's one thing, natural gas, that's a little bit easier, but oil is that much harder and much like George Mitchell, had to convince his own employees and he met into resistance people around him. And much like Aubrey and, and Harold Hamm, people on the outside were skeptical. But Mark Papa said, hey, let's go after oil in the United States. Shale oil? What are you kidding me? And he ignored the skepticism. And my book, The Frackers, is really about ignoring the conventional wisdom and, and perseverance and resilience and... That's what they showed. And they turned on a dime and they targeted oil. And they were able to become an oil giant. Um, EOG became, uh, thanks to that um, that stroke of brilliance on the part of Mark Papa, but beyond that, his his perseverance and his, his ability to persuade his own colleagues, let alone investors and others in the industry.
1: So, Greg, uh, I mean, this has been just so much fun. Uh, is there anything in your book that we didn't touch on um, or that, as, like I said, as we step forward to 2021, that you think uh, is missing, uh, that, that hasn't been said?
0: I think it's really important just to acknowledge the types of people in this industry and the innovation I, that I mentioned, um, the creativity. It's a story, it's an American story. A lot of immigrants, um, a lot of people in my book, The frackers had their back to the wall and didn't know what to do. A lot of the theme that emerges is sort of necessity really is the mother of invention. I mean, George Mitchell, they were running out of oil and gas, so he had to shift gears and target the Barnett and shale. It was sort of his last shot. And sometimes you need to have your back to the wall to to come up with this creativity. And I never, ever count this industry out as a result, but that's kind of one thing one theme that really emerged, Sharif Suki too. Remember Sharif Suki? He was under pressure of his own in 2008. He had to come up with some creative solution. And instead of importing gas, he's like, all right, let's export gas. And it's easy to say in hindsight, but oh, that's what he should have done. But no one was even thinking about it at the time. And you see it in other industries too. I mean, Microsoft, uh, and, and you see also in industries how it's often the smaller upstarts that bring change and 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 a bring a revolution and I'm always as a writer I'm always looking for those smart upstarts and again you see in other industries too I mean Microsoft had this like the search business advertised and they closed it down that allowed Google to emerge you see it over and over again and in big pharma again this book I just wrote a shot to save the world it's about a little company in Germany that ended up saving the world you see it over and over again the upstarts are better at innovating than the Giants. And you see it uh, in, in, in the frackers as, as
1: well. Well, I, I think I think your idea of back against the wall is just like a, a wonderful way to leave us off here because as we've kind of been teasing about, Greg, we definitely saw backs to the wall in the spring of 20. Um, and, and many of these people had to live through that. So um, if I haven't said it before, Greg's book, The Frackers, is the best book I've ran across. I've read of how we've arrived at today's energy business and the drilling techniques used, the people in the room, the companies that have succeeded and survived. Um, Greg, I'm going to put, uh, your newest book on my reading list. Um, a shot to save the world. Greg, where can, where can listeners of the podcast uh, get that book?
0: So a shot to save the world is available, uh, on Amazon, um, most local bookstores as well. And I encourage people to, to reach out to me, um, LinkedIn, Twitter, email, uh, both about the frackers or my other work. I'd love to hear um, reactions, constructive criticism, even some of my best sources are people that had read a book and said, yeah, I like it, Greg. Here's a point you missed. And I love hearing that. So with my new book, A Shot to Save the World or with my previous work, I'd love to hear from people.
1: Greg, we're very thankful and blessed uh, by your writing. Um, like I said, I'm gonna add A Shot to Save the World to my book list. Um, I'd love to have you back on sometime if it works, and uh, we look forward to the next episode of A Book with Legs podcast.
0: Thanks for having me, and uh, The Frackers was frankly my, my most fun experience writing a book, traveling the country, meeting interesting, fascinating uh, individuals in the heartland. So I invite people to uh, reach out to me and stay in touch. Thank you for listening to A Book with Legs, a podcast brought to you by Smead Capital Management. The material provided in this podcast is for informational use only and should not be construed as investment advice. You can learn more about Smead Capital Management and its products at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor.